Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, at the, the last week of every uh, month, we have Emily Jashinsky back on the program to do a docket of issues. Emily is the culture editor over at The Federalist. Um, she is often on Rising, on Book TV these days, um, on, on C-SPAN, doing interviews there. Um, she also works for YAF training up the next generation of conservative intrepid reporters to go out and find the stories that the corporate media will not cover. Uh, and she is an all around uh, culture, pop culture whiz and, and general commentator uh, whose voice is very valuable, even though she is a baby, baby millennial and she doesn't know anything <laughs> because she's too young. And as don't forget that I'm a, a senior fellow here at IWF. Yeah. And she is a senior fellow. Um, <laughs> Emily and I have worked together in so many iterations that I've literally forgotten um, all the ways in which we we're connected. But yes, uh, Emily is a senior fellow here with Independent Women's Forum, which is the sponsor of our podcast and is my employer. Um, so we are very grateful <laughs> to have Emily um, here with us. And we have a, a docket of issues, as we always do. Uh, but this time, I want to start with a piece from a previous podcast, get, podcast guest, um, Robert Pendicio, over at Commentary. In fact, it is the cover story um, of Commentary this month. And um, it's a piece about education, but it's a piece about so much more than that. Um, it's called The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling. How Contemporary Education Fetishes the Bad and the Broken in American Life. Um, and it, it goes into, of course, the, the parent rebellions we've been seeing, Emily, but it, it, it um, you know, delves into something much deeper than that, which is we seem as a society at a loss to um, be able to pass on anything that is, is sort of positive or, or can be grabbed onto uh, to our children through the education system, in part because we've lost the ability to be uncritically patriotic, um, which is the purpose, actually, of, of and as, as Pendicio points out, is, is the original purpose of American public schooling as a whole is to train people how to live not just in a republic, but in this American republic and to understand about our constitutional system and, and the underlying principles um, of, of this country and of the Declaration of Independence. Now that we've abandoned that goal, um, it seems that we don't have anything uncritical to pass on to our kids. And, and Pendicio points out that even though he grew up in an unstable world, um, he's, he's quite a bit older. Um, he grew up in an unstable world as well, but he never had this kind of sense that everything was falling apart or um, that he didn't have anything to grab onto or to be proud of. Um, and and he, he thinks that that's a large part of, of what we're seeing is an increasing mental health crisis among people who are younger. So I don't know which part of that you want to you want to dig into, but um, I know that you, you've thought a lot about sort of why uh, young people, let's say, from, from your baby eight millennial age, um, <laughs> especially, and then especially younger than you, right into Gen Z, why, uh, they seem so much more fragile. Um, and, and in a real way, I mean, I'm tempted sometimes to think of them as a sort of fake fragile, uh, right. it's so yep. frustrating to, to have a conversation with somebody who, uh, says that your words are violence, um, and, and seemingly <laughs> has so little, at least physically to confront. Um, but, but I do believe a lot of that fragility, is genuine and, and Robert believes it too. And, and he's part of what he wrote about in this piece. I mean, what do you think about um, where this is going in terms of how mentally fragile we are going to be and, and how are we going to be able to rebuild any kind of uncritical basis to grab onto that we could actually teach in a public education system? 
Well, I think the essay and uh, your sort of supplement to it and your thoughts on it hit on a really critical point, which is that at a certain point, you can't blame the children um, for being brought up in a world that is utterly failing them. They are children. Uh, it is it is our country's job and our community's jobs to shape them and teach them and mold them. And of course, parents have been failing at that in increasing numbers for a while. Um, and, you know, you can't just sort of expect to outsource that to public schools and everything's going to be all right um, because uh, clearly that's that's not the case. But um, when you look at it, it makes me think of all of the young people who rioted in 2020. Um, and it, when I saw that happening, it's like, well, yeah, there's some opportunism here. In fact, a lot of it, people are going to get free Gucci by busting into uh, Rodeo Drive um, or city center here in Washington, D.C. But at the same time, uh, they have been told by every institution through the duration of their lives that every institution is systemically racist, um, that every interaction, if you read Kendi or D'Angelo or your teachers assign it, or if your teachers have their curriculum based on Kendi and D'Angelo and the thinkers that uh, preceded them, of which there were many, um, and who were uh, you know equally radical, um, you're told that every interaction with a white person is uh, includes racism. You're told that all of the people around you, the people who run our societies, are, are sort of irredeemably racist and aren't trying to overcome their sort of natural racist prejudices. And that applies to pretty much every form of bigotry, you know, which you can substitute this in. And so the, there's a very real, um, there's a very real sense of, you know, injustice. And the only other thing I'll say, because I think you just, explained very well that like there's a there's almost a national conservative element to this which is that like if we are to have public schools and the essay hits on this really well the point of the public schools is to train good citizens right and good citizens we have decided um, should have basic mathematical skills basic reading comprehension skills um, they should be able to write they should be literate um, they should be literate in history to a certain extent etc cetera, etc cetera. but shouldn't an essential part of that be of, of a good citizen be someone who is going to serve the nation well and to build the nation into a better community. Um, and you can't do that if you think the nation is irredeemable. And so without that, you know, you sort of have a problem. And the the last thing that I'll say is I've given a few talks to uh, young people in the last month or so um, and generally work with college students a good deal. And um, the one time I see them all like nodding and I'm not even just talking about conservative student groups. It's when I've found that I mentioned two words um, that make up the phrase moral clarity. Um, and I started dropping that when I just realized it kind of describes what they all tell me <laughs> like their problems are um, or like all of their questions seem to like nobody has ever told them that things are real and fake, that things are right and wrong. And I think, you know, as abstract as the fight over sex and gender sounds to a lot of people, it had really real concrete consequences because um, people now think that we live in this like totally like children who were raised with with that sort of teaching are like it's it's a very postmodern world where it feels like nothing's real um, because the things that are real <laughs> they were told were fake um, and if you sort of 
uh, it's the foundation of, of sand versus the foundation of stone. And basically the realities are constructed on the postmodern foundation of, of sand um, instead of stone. And so they don't trust any of it. Uh, they don't understand any of it. Um, and again, I think this is like a consequence of allowing postmodernism to sort of seep into every aspect of education. And we underestimated the extent to which these identity battles um, where you're expanding the definition of racism, sexism, and gender and sex um, are, are going to really, really, really start having not abstract, but, but real consequences. Yeah. I mean, when, when you said that about moral clarity, it really struck me that that used to be America's strong suit, right? Mm. Um, and to, to the point where we were mocked by Europeans, for example, for, for being <laughs> too black and white, um, too uh, sort of simplistically moral in, in our thinking. Um, but I also think it's, it's more of a disaster for us than elsewhere. I think it's one of the reasons that um, I think our decline will be explosive um, versus European decline, which you can say has been sort of uh, slow and decrepit and, and, and in some ways stable, right? Um, I mean, I think this is part of the reality that America is quite different, um, that we don't have a lot of the, the older kinds of, of stones, I guess, in your analogy to, to fall back on, right? This isn't an ethnic, it's not an ethnostate. Even even in its core, it's not an ethnostate. Ethnostate the way that France or Germany is in its core. Even though both of those um, societies accept immigrants, like there's still this kind of people aspect to it. Israel is the same way, right? There's a peoplehood aspect to it, and there's this idea that they all share some form of like sort of common, not just civilization but ancestry. Which is, by the way, why France can have five different regimes and it's still identifiably France, right? <laughs> if the U.S has a regime change. It's not clear to me that it's identifiably the U.S. Um, because we still, we had this incredibly strong, uh, both civic religion and this, this kind of cultural character that went a lot around with, uh, along with a lot of moral clarity um, that was very, you know, very American. Um, something that I've always loved about this country. Um, but I think you're right. I think that is gone largely, especially for people who were born in the last 20 years or raised in the last 20 years. Um, and so my first reaction when I read this piece from Robert, um, other than to say that I, I think it's really important and everyone should read it, um, was actually, so Palo Alto was at the time when I was growing up there was a uh, formally labeled CDC suicide cluster. Um there were an inordinate number of suicides uh, in this very wealthy, um, very privileged, uh, very academically successful and financially successful enclave, right? A super zip. It's a Charles Murray super zip. Um, and yet there was this incredibly high suicide rate among young people. Um, and, and beyond the suicide, I mean, this, this was the root of my, I guess, my um, contempt for, for a certain kind of therapeutic language, certain kind of like therapeutic culture, because everybody had a therapist, right? Um, everybody, uh, all my friends, almost all of them, they all had therapists, they all, um, all their parents had therapists, right? Like everybody was constantly uh, worried about their mental health and um, trying to, to, to practice quote unquote self-care. All that stuff was very much a part of, of the culture, and yet they had this very high suicide rate. And the way they've always explained it, and there's been some pieces in the Atlantic about it and so on, like trying to figure out why it is that this very successful, privileged, 
um, very, you know, liberal community essentially doesn't offer any seemingly any reasons to live to a substantial number or, or a very high number, um, relatively speaking, of, of its young members. And the answers have pr- predictably been things like, well, the academic pressure is extremely high, um, which is true. It, it is very high and it's, it, it, you know, there are real pressures there. Um, and for a while, I kind of accepted that explanation. And what they've done is put into place, a, you know, a bunch of of feel good kind of speeches, like it's okay if you don't get into Harvard, you know, life isn't over, um, which which I think have had basically no impact on the suicide rate. Um, but I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I think that's not a really good explanation. And, and um, when I read this piece, I, I realized, you know, the whole country is Palo Alto now um, in the sense that there's not a high level of, of religious observance in the way that there was in the past. I believe we just uh, slipped under 50% for the first time, uh, under 50% of Americans saying they have no doubt about the existence of God. Um, they to also very little church community there. It's kind of a forbidden subject. I can't remember anyone ever bringing up church or religion or very, very few people uh, to the extent that when I first got to college, um, it was the first time I'd seen P- Catholics putting the ash on their forehead for Ash Wednesday. And I thought it was um, like a pledge for a sorority because I couldn't figure out why everybody had ash on their heads. You were so close. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, in a sense, I guess it is kind of anyway. Um, but yeah, I had never encountered it because the it, religion is sort of notably absent. Um, people have small families. There's a high rate of divorce, um, which is actually one of the interesting things. Cause when I was reading coming apart by Charles Murray. It was like, actually the place I grew up with is a super zip, but there is a really high level of divorce there. Again, most of my friends had divorced parents. Um, it, it just, there's not a lot to grab onto in terms of meaning. And so that academic competition, that, that sort of getting on the, the, the road to becoming a member of what is now a global elite. Um, that's the only thing that anyone can agree on that has any merit um, and, and meaning. And, and I think that's why people are so stressed out about it. There's nothing to fall back on any, any uh, discussion about being proud of your moral character, for example, that's a complicated subject because where does morality derive from? And do you judge people who have lower moral character? Um, and, and where does that come from anyway? Right. Um, all these postmodern issues that you bring up, these were very much the environment of, of Palo Alto. And in the end, the only thing kids had to grab onto was this rat race to the elite. And when people failed at that or, or didn't succeed to the level that they expected, um, you know, I, I think that's why they reacted that way. There really wasn't much else in that environment to grab onto to, to have a meaningful life. And that's really what I thought about when I read this piece, because I was like, what he's describing is the environment I grew up in, except now it's not limited to a super zip with hyper liberal politics. It, it really has spread to most of the country, even though I know there are pockets here or there that are still re- in resistance mode against this. But it is that kind of Hullabeckian, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Hullabeckian critique of, of modern the modern West saying essentially there's no core here and either we're going to lose hope and kind of fade out um, and not be able to give even a reason to continue living to our kids or uh, a stronger, a stronger, more, more virile society will 
supplant us. Um, That was kind of the Hollebeckian point. I don't know if it's quite that stark or dire, but um, certainly (laughs) it certainly doesn't seem good. I think it is that stark and and it is that dire um, because we're really, I think that is the best way to describe it. We are all Palo Alto now because there's something um, we forget that our entire country is basically wealthier than the entire, like an individual in America on average is like significantly wealthier than um, the average global citizen, as they say, but like even individual States are like wealthier than great Britain. Um, Like almost all of them, I think, except for Mississippi and maybe even that's changed now. Um, And so we just live, even the middle class, even the working class lives with a, a level of material comfort that, um, um, every previous generation would describe as as wealth. Um, you know, even the leisure time um, that we that we have, it's just it's wealthy, um, and that's where the it's wealthy sort of relative to all of society. And imagine sort of living in Palo Alto without the bank account of somebody who lives in Palo Alto. <laughs> imagine, you know, I mean, it's 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 bleak. Um, but I think. There's there's something really interesting about the the level of material comfort and the level of uh, emotional satisfaction and just life satisfaction in general. And that's where um, I, I mean, I think you want to touch on this in another part of the conversation. And maybe this is a segue. Uh, I'm not the host. You're the host. So it's, it's your rules. And as your co-host um, on these. But I was going to say, you well, you had this this point before we started recording about uh, the Caldwell thesis about sort of liberalism, and is um, and Elizabeth Brunig wrote a piece recently too about how children aren't welcome in liberalism, um, or it was phrased something to that extent. And she's basically saying, well, if the American project is is based on this like Enlightenment concept of of individual freedom, um, is sort of community possible? Is uh, family possible? Are we just now reaping the sort of rotten fruit um, that lasted really, that lasted for a long time and was great and ripe for a couple of hundred years, but inevitably sort of rotted when it comes to liberalism, that like the the enlightenment concept of liberalism is, isn't is what enabled postmodernism to blossom, um, basically. And I still have to think through that more because I think you can have one without the other. Um, even if it's true that one did lead to the other, I think you, they're not sort of mutually, they're not sort of, uh, mutually entangled, um, necessarily. But it's, I think that's what you're getting at ultimately is, is the American project, um, is this baked into it? Um, is postmodernism the inevitable outcome of a project based of a country that is a, based on the Enlightenment um, and was the sort of torchbearer of Enlightenment uh, ideas about government and social organization? Um, and I think the answer is yes, but I don't know if that means that we can recover um, because it's like the cheesiest Reagan quote ever. Um, but it's the one that like actually is very real and always seemed sort of abstract to me, but like the one about freedom never being more than a generation from extinction. Um, I think it's interesting because to me, it's the younger millennials and the older zoomers, the older Gen Z. Those are the ones that are really in the like genders, non-binary, like blah, blah, blah camp. Um, I guess maybe it's just all of millennials. And then the zoomers under that are like 
listening to heterodox podcasts and are desperately looking for something to cling to because they're it, it hit them so acutely that they're sort of aware of what they <laughs> that like they need something better and like they're the ones you know they're reading Jordan Peterson and and they're doing all of that kind of stuff because again they're acutely aware of it um but if freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, we are in some trouble. Yeah, we've got we've got two two generations down. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what I think about. It. I, I've always resisted this conclusion that where we are is an inevitable consequence of the Enlightenment. Um, in in part because I never saw America as a a purely Enlightenment project. I'm not at all in the camp, and I think it's actually quite historically dishonest of of certain um, sort of post-liberal right folks um, to try to strip Locke out of the founding. The more honest among them, like people like Adrian Vermeule, are, are quite upfront about the fact that they just want to reject the American system. Um, I don't think you can strip the Enlightenment or Locke out of it, um, out of this project. But it's equally true that it wasn't the only influence. And I think this is where we get into trouble, right? When we have this, and it really arose post-60s, this kind of pure and more extreme version of liberalism than ever uh, was ever certainly would ever occur to the founders of this country, right? Who thought that it was perfectly legitimate to have Lockean liberalism coexist with state laws, uh, for example, banning homosexuality, right? So um, I, I, and, I'm just giving that extreme example because I want to make it clear like they believed the states could absolutely regulate morality. Um, they absolutely, at that time, they believed the states could uh, have established religions that only changed later on when there was more competition as to which religion would be established. Um, and, and, but even long beyond that, America always had a role for the church. Um, it just had a different role for it. Um, and, and a, a more, um, I think I think a, a wiser role for it, honestly, when I look at the influence of um, the, for example, in, in Roman Catholic countries in Europe, the influence of the church. Um, it, it's not what the folks here, I think, who imagine that that would be better usually is. It's it's I think Jefferson was right when the church really intertwines itself with the state. It becomes just as corrupt as anything else in politics. Um and that's at least what I what I see in these countries is more that than than the latter. Right. Um and I don't think you need an established church to have a public morality. Uh, but but the idea that America is this like wrong. You no. Know, <laughs> yeah. Um America is this project that is is pure liberalism um with with no limitations and I, I think um one of the the consistent errors the right has made since the 1960s has been to assume that the vessel of liberalism has no content. That it's it's only the neutral rules of the road. I mean, this is the the famous David French thing about the blessings of of liberty, right? Um, and Drag Queen Story Hour, that that the rules of the road are enough to hold together a society. I think it was always clear to our founders that that wasn't the case. Um, and that I agree with that completely. You needed a normative set of principles in America became something close to a civic religion, which for a long time was intertwined with Protestantism, um, but that you needed a normative set of commitments that uh, Robert in this piece is basically saying we don't have any more in common. Um, and we don't worse than not in common. A large part of the country doesn't have them at all. Okay. You know, um, and I, I don't think that that would have been a problem foreign to our founders. And I don't think that, um, 
you know, it's impossible to have a, a liberal state with normative commitments um, yeah. is, uh, on the part of the population. Now, how to maintain those over time? Yes, it's a, it's a difficult question. Um, but I, I just I don't buy this this idea that it's the inevitable ev evolution of, of um, liberalism, in part because it really didn't happen until the 1960s. We had all yeah. kinds of disagreements as a country about what those principles should be. Um, some of them, and including, you know, erupting into civil war. But th the kind of specific postmodern liberalism um, really can be dated to the 60s in this country in terms of it having any kind of influence whatsoever. So I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't think it's inevitable. I, I think um, it is very odd that America has lost its moral clarity because for a country that didn't have an established church, um, and, and for a country that, that never had the kind of intertwinement, uh, uh, between religion and the public altar, um, as some, some European countries still do, you know, Americans sure managed to hold a lot of moral clarity all the way <laughs> the and then into the sixties and seventies. Um, even though there was this growing movement and the movement that I'm talking about, it still remained a minority until it essentially took over the institutions in this country. Um, <laughs> So I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a little hard to explain under under the post-modern or sort of the post-liberal right analysis why it is that, you know, America made John Wayne movies in the mm. 1950s and into the 60s and even into the 70s, right? It's, it's really hard to explain why that's the case and why that, like, strong sense of morality that is way stronger, that moral clarity way stronger than than what exists in most European countries where they do have an established church in some of these countries. Well, you can, you, you can um, say that critical race theory, you can pass state laws, you could even pass a federal law, I don't care in this case, um, saying that critical race theory or basically banning what counts as, not banning it, but limiting um, the way that some of these like actual racist ideologies are taught um, by just establishing that we we can't promote racism we can we can sort of teach it and and say this is what it looks like and this is why it's bad um, and we absolutely should do that by the way you can do that without bringing back sodomy laws <laughs> like you can there is a there's a, a there's an attainable balance here um, I agree with that entirely although I also also think it's very interesting not to get too like sort of I don't know crazy I'm on my like sort of obsessive tech fixation these days but I do wonder if you can have the um, the free market system that we have in this country and in the West more broadly um, without also sort of unleashing the industrial revolution um, and, you know, whatever the future version of the industrial revolution might look like. Um, I do wonder if that was sort of inextricably tied to our system of government. And I think all of that has basically just created anti-humanism. I think postmodernism is anti-human. Um, I think that's why it makes people unhappy um, because it sort of conditions us to live against our nature and our, um, you know, our what makes people sort of satisfied just biologically, evolutionarily um, as human beings. And that's not to say I don't love that I have a laundry machine, uh, a washing machine and a dishwasher. I think that's great. Um, but I do think we have sort of the, the, 
cumulative effect of all of it has been to sort of push us into an anti-human space. And um, I, I think postmodernism sort of springs from that well. Um, and maybe those are connected. But to fix it, you don't have to swing full sort of neo-monarchist um, or, you know, full strongman nor do you have to swing full David French um, drag queen story hour. Like we know what the roadmap looks like. Uh, there is a sort of a happy middle, but I do think the technological problems are foundational and we can't really get back to that. Like that's my concern is can we get back to that um, where we share enough values to sort of reconfigure um, the laws and, you know, rebalance the laws and society. Um, can we get back to a point where we share enough values to actually do that, where we believe that <laughs> men and women are men and women, where we believe that racism is X, not Y. Um, I don't know if we can get back to that point, um, but I do think, you know, having a, a reconfiguring our relationship with tech would be the first place to start. Well, you know, um, I don't tend to think we can go back. I mean, it's one of the things that has changed in my thinking. I used to be much more, I think, conservative, like capital C conservative than I am now. I In part because I still had this restorationist hope um, that we were going to reestablish certain things. And now I tend to think that the way out is through um, and that it's going to look like something that we can't predict right now. Um, but it has crossed my mind that, you know, maybe wokeness is, you kind of alluded to this in the beginning of your answer, but uh, that wokeness is our next great awakening, our great moment of moral clarity, right? Um, and and that, in fact, the only people who seem to have any moral clarity are are the, the people who are participating in this cultural revolution. Um, but one of the things that's really both seemingly unique, um, at least historically, um, and really, really irritating... <laughs> Is, is that this Great Awakening seems to be prosecuted by a kind of feminist bureaucracy um, that has this sort of uh, very therapeutic, like self-care kind of language to it. Um, and here I'm thinking about, for example, what's happening to our neighbors in the north um, in Canada, where the Ottawa police put out a tweet um, right before they started to violently move the protesters there out um, that said, well, we've given you a chance to be reasonable and now we're coming in and we're going to be using batons for our own safety, of course, because you are unreasonable. Um, I'm, I'm putting, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that was, that was the tone of this tweet, which was, you know, the, the ultimate application of state force, right? There is nothing um, cute or, or um, a sort of, uh, uh, self-carry about, you know, applying batons to people's heads. Um, but it, it came in this clothing of like, well, we're doing this for our own safety because you're unreasonable. I'm going to count to three. And by the time I, <laughs> I count to three, you better get out of here. Um, it had that whole feel to it. Um, so, so Richard, Richard Hania, uh, Hanania, Sorry. Uh, I knew I was going to mess that up. That's why we're laughing because I said it off air in the beginning. It was like, I'm definitely going to mess it up. Um, Richard Hanania. I thought you wrote has, it down phonetically. I did, and I still mess it up. Um, so, uh, anyway, so he wrote this piece on women's tears uh, in, in public discourse, in which he brings up um, a very interesting scenario where he says some of these campus confrontations, right, where you have, um, 
somebody yelling in somebody else's face for 20 minutes about how they're participating in racism. Usually it's it's a dean of some kind or an administrator being yelled at by a crowd or even one on one. And and he says something really interesting, which I thought was was quite true. It's that, um, you know, you can only if you're a man yelling in another man's face in that way. There's only one of two outcomes. Either you're going to have to stop rather quickly um, or it's going to get turned physically violent, right? Um, there's just an inability of two men to yell at each other in that way um, and have it not escalate physically um, after a certain number of minutes, right? You might get away with it for a minute or two, but there's a, a natural sort of es escalation of force that happens or somebody backs up and goes away. Um Whereas in, in the female context, you can continue to berate um, and yell. And he, he points out several other things about the, the nature of our, our feminized kind of public square. Um, I mean, to me, what I, what I thought about when I was, I was reading through this is, you know, we've, <laughs> it's almost like the Title IX uh, context or, or the like Me Too era, um, you know, sort of framework that popped up in a way to try to deal with the results, the inevitable results of male nature, human nature, um, female nature, and the sexual revolution, right? Um, where, and we've discussed this before, where uh, we now have sort of a legal busybody network to try to um, to determine what, what has happened in, in almost always ambiguous and gray situations in which much is left unsaid by necessity, Um and, and it seems like it's trying to cram this back into this, this sort of legalistic framework. I almost think about how we've made feminine traits really not ad admirable in society. They're certainly not celebrated in our media or, or our, um, our movies or anything like that. But they're sort of popping up in these inappropriate contexts, right, um, where it's, it's okay to unleash a very feminine rage. Um, or, Toxic or femininity. Yeah, like it is. It is toxic femininity, but it's something that seems to me in the same way as the sexual dynamics that were tried to be or or were attempted to get like sort of pushed out because they were deemed sexist, pop back up in the college hookup context and like West Elm Caleb and all of that. Um and and the response to that was okay, well we need to create a <laughs> even more strict framework um that kind of makes it no fun for anybody. It's 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 almost like that where these feminine traits are suppressed in most contexts. We definitely ask women to behave like men or encourage them to behave like men from a young age. Um, we celebrate women who can fight and kick men in the face and like be very aggressive. Uh, but then these kind of toxic feminine traits kind of pick up uh, it, or, or pop up in, in unexpected places. And I, that's kind of what I was thinking about when I read this. But um I don't know. What did you think about this this piece? Because it, it seemed to me like the core of this idea is really, really interesting, but then parts of it seem to go a little bit further than I would take it. I, I didn't like it, but I don't know. I, I still don't entirely know why. Probably, obviously, because I'm a woman um, and I am easily offended. Um, no, I, I think what he's talking about. I think might maybe a better way to describe it, and he does sort of talk about this, but. It's, it's an incursion of femininity into a traditionally masculine space. And it's a space that, you know, really needs masculine virtues in order to, to function properly. But not to get into a sort of chicken or egg type of situation, but the reason that 
women are in, uh, I mean, so th- here's another thing. This was, this was one of my early kind of red pills. Um, was like, we have only existed like within one generation of having this level of men and women together in the workforce. And this was something that sort of became clear in me too. Like we went from our parents' generation being the pioneers of women taking the exact same jobs of men at that level in so many different professions and spending their nine to fives, the majority of their weeks in close quarters with these, this sort of equal standing, equal footing. That is a, a huge explosion of sexual power dynamics that I don't know has ever happened on that scale um, in a sort of country like ours that was as technologically advanced as ours. I mean, that the a huge explosion of sexual dynamics. And I think uh, that we're, we're what he's talking about, I sort of feel like is downstream of that. And the idea that women should be in the workplace bossing men around is, is kind of a masculine, uh, <laughs> it's like sort of, a, it's sort of like women aping men. And so I think ultimately that was my problem with the piece is that like, I do agree. And I think this has been particularly, and, and you would know about this, Inez, I think this has been particularly egregious in education. Um, you know, I, I talk about this all the time, but when I worked for Christina Hoff Summers, I was helping, you know, sort of with the research for her second edition of War Against Boys. And there are a lot of really specific ways that in order to lift girls in school and to lift their academic performance, we, uh, you know, suppressed men's academic performance, even just by like shortening recess times and changing the way that kids were allowed to play and changing, you know, math problems to word problems and all of those things. So I do think that that's happened. Um, and I think that it is an outgrowth of the sort of feminist movement. But I think ultimately it comes to women trying to uh, trying to replicate or behave like men. Um, and I think that means they've brought sort of feminine traits that have, I mean, I've just also seen a lot of guys yell at each other, like at, at protests and stuff. Like maybe it's because they're the type of men who protest things, but I, I've seen men yell at each other without breaking into fights. <laughs> so I, some of it, I just thought was like a little specific and off, but I, I also think at the end of the day, it's really like, women trying to be men that has brought some feminine uh some feminine traits or normalized feminine traits and even um created a reverence for feminine traits um in traditionally masculine spaces well i mean it's certainly true that as women and christina hoff summers obviously has done amazing research on this but as we become a more female dominated society i mean the the positions of prestige wealth and power are increasingly uh, going to go to women because women gravitate towards some of more of these service industries, right? Uh, the, the, the credentialing treadmill and the fact that you now have to go through that gauntlet um, of getting a college degree before you can really um, join the, the halls of power. You have to be credentialed in that way, which means you had to sit, as you pointed out, you have to sit quietly and be a good academic student for, for 12 years and then get into a good school um, and then do it for another four years um, and then potentially even more education. I mean, there 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 are biases to uh, or advantages to being a woman in a service economy that that are you know obviously the opposite. If, for example, we have a manufacturing dominated economy that requires um, a lot of heavy labor, or or um, even if if uh, if we have so one of the, some of the, the 
kind of elite jobs that are still dominated by men are are more um, things like programming, where you have to be totally, you know, locked in a cubicle for 12 to 14 hours a day, right? Um, but but on the whole, we are moving towards a, a lot more jobs and a lot more um, positions of power that will be a tr- more attractive to women than to men. And there'll be more women than men who have the credentials for those, for those jobs. Uh, so it makes sense in, in a certain level that like, yes, our society will become more feminized as more people in power are female. Um, but, you know, women have always had an enormous amount of, especially for example, purchasing power, right? Um, this is sort of the, the most basic of advertising uh, maxims, right? Is that women are doing the purchasing. And it's also a matter of what those women want. Um, Because it seems to me that, like, one of the the best examples of this, I think, is is the change in Victoria's Secret um, advertising, right, recently, where they dropped the smoking hot, like, Victoria's Victoria's Secret fashion show models. It was always just basically a parade of the hottest women in the world. Um, They dropped the Angels program, and now they have, you know, Megan Rapinoe, and they have, like, women who have accomplished this or that, and they, they, uh, instead of that, they they put them in lingerie, and they put them in these ads, um, or or they're completely trying to change their image. The valorization of the A cup by Inez (laughs) Stepman coming (laughs) this Um, Christmas. That'll be... An interesting one for me to write. Anyway, don't write uh, that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but but it strikes me that they are trying to go for a customer because it was always women spending money at Victoria's Secret, right? It, it's not the case that the majority of purchases at Victoria's Secret were ever made by men. Most of them were made by women. But there was still like women still wanted to please men. And so the the entire advertising strategy of Victoria's Secret was essentially to attract men and and thereby to attract female customers because they wanted they they saw that that um, these incredibly beautiful women are desirable and they wanted to be more like them in order to attract men. Right. It was it was ultimately kind of, you know, what men want, but through the fact that women wanted to be that. Well, and that's why I think we're more androgenizing our society than feminizing it. And I, I completely agree. We feminized it in particular ways, but I also feel like we're just trying to neuter both genders, sexes, I should say, um, in ways that are close. And you see this in fashion. Um, absolutely. This in fashion. You see this, uh, in the way that we treat the Civil Rights Act. You see this in the way we treat Title IX and interpret Title IX. Um, I, I feel like it's more, androgenizing and that goes into the sort of safetyism um you know there's there's less sex happening with younger people there's less risk taking in general and you know masculinity and femininity at their edges um you know they they are the the sort of version of of each that is toxic which of course exists you know from mean girls to super bad um that that obviously exists and the version of it at those edges people aren't sort of even flirting with it anymore and I think I think it's more of a part of androgenizing, and that's anti-human. I think, um, and it sort of goes along with the postmodernism and that that river that flows to De Beauvoir and um, then flows to uh, everything surrounding J.K. Rowling and you know the opinion page of the New York Times. Um, so I guess maybe that's ultimately what sort of irritated me about this. I feel like it's more a push of androgyny than femininity. I mean, I suppose that's true, but I also do think that 
it's androgyny maybe in outward appearance, but there there is a there's always a again, nature will reassert itself, right? Um there is this very weird, for example, I, I associate with the girl boss culture. I associate quite provocatively dressing for men with that culture. Am I wrong to do that? So I, I think really this is a generational thing because the, the girl bosses are more millennial style. Um, let's say women between the ages of like 26 or seven and, um, and, and yeah. uh, you know, into their 30s. But I, I associate that culture with actually, you know, wearing suits, but like wearing suits with pl- plunging blouses. And, and there's, there is a, like a provocative element, like, look at me, I'm a woman. Don't forget that I'm a woman. But, but coupling it with a very aggressive sort of masculine um, demeanor. Yeah, I, I think there is something I, there is something um, and even the more androgynous looks. I mean, think about like Billie Eilish now coming out of, of her like imposed shell of an androgynous dressing. Yes. I, I, I don't know. When I see um, a lot of the androgynous dressing around around New York, it's always to highlight, actually, in, in a, a sort of um, contradictory or seemingly contradictory way, always to highlight the, the sexuality of, of the women wearing it. I don't think you can kind of breed that out of women. I think it's well, just a different form now that it's not socially acceptable, say, to want to be the girl in the Victoria's Secret poster because you're directly appealing to men in that that way. Um, and I don't mean just by parading in your lingerie, but I mean in, in the larger sense, like directly appealing to what men like is not acceptable. It's not considered acceptable. Yeah, nobody wants to be Alicia Silverstone and Clueless. Um, but the interesting thing about um, the interesting thing about Billie Eilish is she justified her androgyny by saying it m- helped her anxiety. She she was experiencing this very sort of common Zoomer sense of just anxiety from existential concerns that, you know, you couldn't put your finger on. She had all of these body dysmorphia issues. And she said that the androgyny for her was a way to treat it. And I thought that was just like super, super interesting. I don't disagree with you that the the girl boss fad, it's, it's sort of, you want to take the masculine and make it feminine. I think that's completely, I agree with you, but it's also downstream of the broader sort of, let's androgenize by having women be providers for like they they should be the breadwinners they should be prepared to live without a man and etc etc which again like okay i get but like is it the the organizing block or the building block an appropriate building block for for society but um, I guess I still see the girl boss thing as a symptom of the the broader sort of androgyny um well it's it's that's interesting I, I I'm not sure here here I'm actually gonna bring up um something about technology as opposed to I, I tend to be the person who who uh, chases down sort of the intellectual origins of ideas and believes in the power of of ideas sweeping culture and you tend to be uh, in the camp of that this is we are working our way through a technological revolution that we we can't quite keep up with um, that that our our biology and our, our brains are not quite equipped um, to deal with it. But here, it seems to me there's a quite simple explanation, which is that uh, no generation of girls, including mine, actually, um, I don't know, you you can answer this for yourself. I don't know, you were probably right on the cusp. But um, 
no generation of girls had to go through puberty uh, taking pictures of themselves and putting them in public every day. Um, and puberty is awkward. And um, even for, for, for the vast majority of, of girls and probably the vast majority of boys, right? Um, it, it comes along with deep insecurity. Um, your body's changing. Um, you probably are, are changing weight, changing, you know, your skin is, is, uh, gets full of pimples. Like it's just, it's just kind of miserable and awkward. Um, and I, it, I can't, knows. yeah, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't imagine going through that and having to post photos of yourself and have them evaluated by your peers um, in that way. And I wonder how much of that androgyny or, or the way that, for example, Billie Eilish dressed was just a response to that. I mean, she she wasn't one of those rare, she's a beautiful girl, but she wasn't one of those like rare people who wasn't beaten by by the the puberty stick um, with awkwardness, right? She She covered up because she didn't match like, you know, an Ariana Grande style um, perfection, like pop perfection. Um, that seems to me to be the more obvious explanation for some of that. And then as it became more, you know, taken over by fashion and worn by older, older girls and older women, um, it became more like, I can just tell you walking around in New York, it's definitely sexualized. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quote unquote androgynous, but it's also deeply sexualized, um, yeah. in, in a way that is, uh, it's like intentionally supposed to, it's actually supposed to be, Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm so sexy that I can wear literally yes. it's this t-shirt and I can show my whole midriff and I can like sling um, now micro minis are back. Like I can wear a micro mini, but then I'll wear like, you know, uh, a sort of <laughs> punk like jacket over it. it. It's, it's, you know, it reminds me actually a lot of um, the early two thousands, which is obviously derived from, but in any case, there's no doubt that the 22-year-old girls in New York walking around with this aesthetic are – it's sexualized. It's not – Yes. Homogenous. Although I think it has also given um, permission to the sort of Billie Eilishes that are coping in different ways to sort of cover their body in a, in a more, you know, safe way or a way that feels safer to them. Um, but yeah, and, and I think this is sort of chicken or egg-y because I would still argue that um, – you know, the mirror, when the mirror came out, there was a concern that even when the watch came out, there was a concern that people were sort of obsessed with it. When photography came out, you know, what feels like ages ago, I mean, that's actually a very, very new thing. And I'm not going to go so far as to call photography anti-human because I think as an art that's operating within this, this context, it is, I mean, it can be so profound. Um, but it's very new to the human species. Um, and even though it feels really old, and even though some of those pictures look really old, even if they're from the 90s on a disposable camera, um, I, I do think that, like, yeah, I, I think some of this is actually sort of still post um, tech revolution going back to like the printing press. Um, and some of it is just still very new to the human race and very confusing. Um, and I just what I see is the social media revolution of the last 15 years accelerated it. And the younger millennials like myself um, and, and I think older millennials to extent, but especially younger millennials and Gen Z, they are experiencing the sort of downstream consequences of that and reacting in some interesting ways that make me think you're completely right that we have to, the only way to solve it is to go through it um, because that brings people out uh, and say like, 
whoa, we're living without this. We actually really need it. We're living without sort of these common understandings of, you know, God and purpose and uh, sex and race and et cetera, et cetera. We actually really need to sort of share a foundation as a society. Yeah. Let, let me, um, as we come to the close of this, this episode, I, I, I want to bring up one more article. Um, and I think it's relevant to this conversation to bring it full circle. Right. Uh, so there's been a certain amount of hope in the last, let's say, several months, right? We had this big victory um, in Virginia, not because of the politics involved in that, but because a bunch of parents were so opposed to what was being taught and then um, ultimately not taught when when the schools were closed um, in, in the schools that a lot of center-left folks went and voted for a Republican. Um, it seems like there is a, a large wave against this stuff. Now, whether Republicans and something we've, we've talked about in the past uh, that I, I want to just bracket for this conversation is whether Republicans will actually pass any policies worthwhile um, out of that. Um, but, but in the deeper sense, there is this, um, this piece that has been going around from Substack um, and it's written by NS Lyons um, and it's called No, the Revolution Isn't Over. None of the fundamental drivers of wokeness have relented. And I think he has a really depressing, but, but a really good set of points. Um, one is that wokeness is, is filling the role of religion and people, you know, it's difficult to convert people from their religion. Um, another is that more important to what we've been talking about, the, the postmodern void of meaning still hasn't been filled. There's, there's no answer. And here, I think this is where a lot of the folks like, David French go wrong is he thinks that we can fill it with this very neutral rules of the road kind of liberalism. And that, that just doesn't fulfill the needs of, of human beings to actually feel, you know, that moral clarity about anything, right? Pocket um, constitutions. The answer is, is pocket constitutions. American civic religion. Um, <laughs> and then he points out that, that the atomization that has led to all of this that that Robert talked about in in his piece the the sort of feeling alone um, and atomized and disconnected um, doesn't that hasn't abated and so I, I think he he basically predicts that this is going to be yes there will be a backlash but it won't actually succeed in derailing the train that is wokeness from from sort of continuing um, in this country and. That, you know, one, of course, that's really depressing um, to think that this backlash might not come up with uh, much, even though it is it is definitely happening. So I'm not saying it's not happening and it is encouraging, but, um, you know, <laughs> he, he closed it by saying with long marches take a long time. Um, and, you know, what do you think the fate of this backlash is? do you think that we are going to be able to go through, as you say, and come up with some new sources of meaning? Are we going to be able to synthesize the technological revolution in a, in a, in a more like human and sane way? Um, are we going to be able to come up as a species? We are very adaptable, right? Um, are we going to be able to come up with answers that we can give the next generation, whether even if we, for example, we win the political battle and we control what is being taught in, in the classrooms and it's something much more reasonable. Well, what is that thing? Mm -hmm. um, what's that story that we're going to be able to tell to our children about who we are, what we believe? Um, you know, <laughs> when we don't seem to be able, even, even a lot of people on the right, um, I don't think truly can uncritically articulate anything on that kind of base level that's certain yeah 
The person who's good at it is Jordan Peterson, and he's not really necessarily on the right. And I I think we've seen that actually some of the most effective communicators um, against the the sort of creeping wokeness. But I I think even more like nihilism or you could even call it hedonism or whatever form it takes, like the the sort of uh, cultural, the the monopolistic cultural ideology to the extent that we can define it. The the people who are best at um, questioning it aren't necessarily on the right. Um, and that's why I actually, I see it all as sort of the same kind of thing. So like I see what happened in Loudoun County as the same, and that's kind of good news as the same thing as like why Jordan Peterson suddenly was a best-selling international author with a book that gives almost reactionary, but very solid and morally clear advice. Um, I, I see it all as part of the same thing that like, it's exactly why people are for, just suddenly like freaking out when the postmodern, explicitly postmodern ideas about education, education are being implemented in policy like these are actually being implemented not just sort of being talked about and tinkered around the edges but they have like fully taken over our, our institution edu- educational institutions um I, I think it's it's all part of the same thing and so i guess the question is you know does it just stop at uh you know it, it, it does it just stop at sort of maybe at a, at a David French point um, or does it actually keep going to, you know, where we, we, it's, it's not just a new civic religion, but where we actually have, we're sort of comfortable in sharing Judeo Christian Western uh, concept of, of freedom and community and country. Um, that is a good question because you're very right that it can't just stop at one, but I do think that this is all part of the same thing. Well, you're always the more optimistic person. I'm always the most, more <laughs> pessimistic. Let me give you my pessimistic rejoinder before we wrap here. Uh, and that is that Jordan Peterson does not seem to me um, to, to be a particularly happy or stable person who seems to have answered these things for himself. He's he working on it though. He's, he's working on it really hard and that's not a knock on Jordan Peterson. I, I, I think he's very smart and very interesting and very determined to sort of push his way through the morass of post-modernity. I just don't think he's truly done it. Um, I don't think, and, and, um, I think that's, that's the problem that faces us. Um, and that's the kind of, to, to loop this all full circle again, that's the Wallabeckian you know, real problem, right? It's how to restore meaning in a society that's lost its ability to kind of uncritically accept things, even things that may be false, but things that gave meaning um, to yeah. people's lives and and to the the bonds that people forged with each other. And um, I don't know that Jordan Peterson has actually succeeded in, in doing that, I think he's he's trying and in his to his great credit, he's actually grappling with that problem like every single day and attempting to synthesize a, a sort of um, you know enlightenment rationality with a, a certain type of faith. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of the success of that project or whether that type of blend can ultimately play the same role that religion did for thousands of years in human society. Right. Um, but uh, we'll we'll go ahead and wrap it up there because Emily Emily has a Bible study to get to. <laughs> Because she, she's the, I hope I hope both you and Jordan Peterson find God. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I hope America finds God. Anyway, um, we're gonna let we're gonna let Emily work on on that project for us for a while in in a more effective way than podcasting. Um, 
So uh, Emily Jashinsky, thank you so much for uh, for coming on High Noon. We have these After Dark episodes um, every month. Uh, so you will hear Emily back again next month. And uh, so thanks for coming back on, Emily. I'll be back next month. About to turn 29. <laughs> Wait till you hit 30 and I can make fun of you for being old. <laughs> coming thank- up. Thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can hit send comments or questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.